Thank you very much. Um, I was just going to start off by saying this is a relatively new project for me in terms of writing. Um, I hope it's going to turn into a book next year, so there might be echoes that are going beyond a paper. Um, so I'm very grateful to Javier for inviting me here, but very grateful for any comments and advice in taking this forward from the rest of you. And I just wanted to note before I started that I didn't intend this to be an SDS paper in the studies of science and technology sense, or science and technology studies sense, but as I've been developing and writing the ethnography, certain echoes and conversations have started to emerge. So I've noted them, but it's not a thorough SDS paper in that sense. But there is, however, another SDS at the heart of this, which is the semi-Palatinsk test site in northeast Kazakhstan. So when I refer to SDS, that's what I'm talking <laughs> about, be warned. Now, I've got a few, very few pictures, and I'm, what I wanted to do was just nip through them very quickly now so you know where this place is. I'm told by geography colleagues it's much more important to do this for geographers so they know where things are, but anyway, you, you may well do this. And part, one of the reasons I thought I'd do it now rather than as I go through is, if possible, I would quite like you to see if you can hold some of these things concurrently in your mind, because in a way they're different ways of thinking about a place. Um, now, so, I'm not used to this thing. This is just to place it. Kazakhstan, uh, so China, if this helps, usually I normally say it's south of Siberia to the west of China, above Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. This, now, Almaty is the capital where I've always worked before, and Kachatov, the little town that I'm talking about, is up here, and this is where the semi-Palatinsk test site is, okay, in there, so I will come back to that. I've got this map I'll leave up at the end, and then just to show very quickly a few other ways of seeing this. The little town I'm talking about is here. Um, with There is still, as you can see in the site here, a few nuclear research institutes that are scattered about the site, which you actually don't tend to see when you just come into the town. There's a very large Irtish river here going through it between Semipalatinsk and Pavlodar. And Beria built this whole thing, or it was his, he kicked off the programme. This map is in the little museum in Semipalatinsk. This is not the explosion, as somebody asked me once. It just happened to be the flash of my camera. Um, but it does look rather dramatic. The thing I wanted to point out here is the red line, which is the boundary around the test site, which is quite important to remember as I come on to this thing. So this is a cartographic representation of this very, very large site. This is what it actually looks like. Um, and because the fence, as I'll tell you later, that goes round this enormous place has now disappeared, it's quite hard to know when you're on it and when you're not. So, these are just a few photographs. I do not know how you take a photograph that gives you a sense of an immense place. But this is my attempt. It is huge, and you look and you just see this going for miles and miles and miles. <coughs> and another, I'll just give you a very brief story behind this. Part, part of the um, characteristic of this place, it is very isolated, which many nuclear closed, formerly closed secret towns are. This is the road between Semipalatinsk, the nearby town, about three or four hours' drive away, and Kuchatov. I took it, this bit of the road is in very good nick. A lot of the road isn't. And I was standing by the side of the road because not one but two of our tyres had been shredded to pieces on the mud-sharp ruts and we were waiting for another car to come in with spare tyres. So this is quite a common thing. And again, standing there in this immensity. This is the entrance to Kuchatov. This I mentioned later on, just lying unused. This is the former KGB checkpoint before you went into the town itself, now just unused but not removed, it's still there. These things, when I thought, what are these bundles of old things lying around? And someone said, ah, as you see up there, they're the rolls of barbed wire that used to guard the perimeter of the town. 
surprisingly still there. A lot of the metal has been taken away for sale, for scrap. And just to flick through a few pictures of the town that remains, which is a combination of Kazakhstan's national nuclear centre, so quite an important centre for this, and ruins. So these are just some examples. People talk about the former fantastic infrastructure that used to be there, um, and very few things remain. This is an example of the old Stalinist ruins, some rather grand, some enormous hotels, very grand things that used to be there, very, very overgrown. This is somebody going off from the laboratories on site and this rather wonderful uh, caravan, sort of almost like a, a, a mini lab, but it's, it's not, to go off to do a, a field visits to the site in the summer to bring back uh, plant samples for testing. She was great, she was one of my main informants, and because I suddenly thought, haven't talked about people enough, I mentioned Elena, and these are her two little very jolly boys, Piotr and Stefan, uh, who was living there, another of my main informants over there, Vitalevna, and a family who, again, hung out with quite a bit, and we're back to the map. Sorry, that was rather a whiz. Very happy to go back to any of those, but I'm going to leave that up there while I get on with the paper, if that's okay. <coughs> so, introduction. 1949, and the Soviet Union detonated its first atomic bomb in a huge area in the northeastern Kazakh steppe, which had been selected for nuclear tests. By the time testing stopped in 1991, there'd been approximately 456 explosions. From the late 1960s, the test site, SDS, also hosted a civil nuclear research program. In the midst of the exceptionally harsh winter of 1993-4, the Soviet-turned Russian army left the small town that housed the people and their families who worked on the site. These were frightening times for those left behind. The infrastructure buckled and broke down in the extreme cold with no skilled maintenance at hand. The rump population was painfully aware that with the single purpose of their isolated town gone, it was as likely to crumble into ruins as neighbouring military garrisons had done and similarly marooned one-company towns across the former <laughs> Soviet space were to do over the next decade. At this crucial moment, so things tipping could go either way, Nazarbayev, Kazakhstan's president, arrived. He flew in and in a locally much-quoted speech said, hey guys, don't leave Kazakhstan. Don't leave, sorry. Kazakhstan needs your skills. We will build the National Nuclear Centre here. Now, there was a lot of scepticism about this, but 20 years later, now, it seems as though Nazarbayev's boldness was perhaps justified. Kazakhstan is a phenomenally resource-rich country. It's had 12% of the world's uranium resources, re reserves and became the world's largest producer of uranium in 2009. Its output increasing year on year to a 38% global share in 2013. In May this year, Russia and Kazakhstan signed a cooperation agreement to build a reactor for nuclear energy on the SDS, and Kazakhstan is apparently, many things are apparently, in discussion with the IAEA to host a global nuclear fuel bank of stockpiled low-enriched uranium. The clearest statements about Kazakhstan's nuclear ambitions appear in a 2011 government publication and here, besides setting out those ambitions to host a global fuel bank, Kairat Kadrijanov, the then director of the National Nuclear Centre, which I'm going to call NNC, I hope from now on, writes on becoming a new peaceful nuclear power. The energy minister discusses Kazakhstan as a nuclear leader, and the IAEA hails the country for heading, I quote, the nuclear renaissance the possible development of local nuclear industries, so like nuclear medicine, for example, is also itemised. And Kazakhstan's role in developing peaceful nuclear energy is something on which Nazarbayev has long built his legitimacy 
as Cathy Werner, another anthropologist, and Purvis, uh, Cynthia Werner, Werner, sorry, and Purvis Rovitz have discussed. And this particular nationalist narrative usually sets up, very simplistically said, Kazakhstan as victim of Soviet aggression and then emphasises how under Nazarbayev the site was closed, warheads removed, and the government declared itself an advocate of civilian and peaceful nuclear energy and technology. The problems with this narrative begin to be shown in the National Nuclear Centre's little museum. If you look carefully, there are photographs of Kunayev and Nazarbayev, Kazakhstan's (coughs) Kazakh first secretaries from the mid-1960s on, visiting the site in their official capacity, smilingly shaking hands with a top brass and so on, clearly on very excellent terms. A key question, then, I'm trying to think about is how do we, or the government there, square persistent nuclear pasts with what appears to be a radiant atomic future? Peter asked me just before I started, so is this going to be about nuclear waste or nuclear energy? And I said, well, that's what the paper is meant to be about both. How do you reconcile one with the other? How has Kazakhstan apparently disentangled itself from a Cold War legacy of contaminated land and radiation-related pathologies to move on? Cleaning up, after all, can indicate both eliminating contamination and simply cashing in. So is the reconfiguration of the relationship between town and test site just another example of a post-industrial town reinventing itself and quite literally, in this case, putting itself on the map? Or is there something specific, exceptional, about nuclear work, legacies, townships and people? And as I explore here, there are sometimes insurmountable tensions in the state-building exercises of securing both a particular version of the nuclear past on Kazakh land and nuclear futures as a distinctly and distinctively Kazakh enterprise. And these, in turn, affect the ability of the town to reimagine its relationship with the site and move on. Arguably, these questions are particularly poignant in the case of Kazakhstan, because the key difference between here and other Cold War nuclear test sites is that the political entity that carried out the tests no longer exists. In other cases, theoretically, demands for contamination remediation or compensation can be directed towards the same sovereign power that carried them out. Theoretically, as success is often quite limited, but there's the opportunity there. The geopolitical break of 1991 shadows Kazakhstan's nuclear futures in other ways. Uh, The Soviet plutonium economy, to borrow Joe Masco's phrase about the US, was sliced up by new national borders. The institutes and factories where people were trained, built engines and bombs, produced plutonium, devised scientific protocols and analysed the results were all in Russia. Thus, while Kazakhstan's nuclear futures are based on the presence of Soviet-era experimental reactors, if you remember on the second slide I showed you, uh, on the SDS and in Almaty's Institute of Nuclear Physics, they're also linked and profoundly dependent on the Soviet network that allowed them to function. Now, I'm going to suggest that an integral part of the process of moving on has been an emphasis, highly contested, on a very particular way of knowing the site, the STS. Much of the debate over what to do with the site is grounded on different claims of how it can be known and what those claims enable. And what appears is perhaps akin to what Gabrielle Hecht, an American historian, calls, described in her work on the African uranium trade as nuclearity, which is a quality not physically defined by radioactivity, but something that is semantically and politically mobile. She suggests that whether or not countries, uranium ore, enrichment technologies or process designs are qualified as nuclear (laughs) 
<coughs> depends on technopolitics rather than an objective condition or capacity. In other words, the political terrain on the one hand and nuclear infrastructures, people and materials on the other are mutually constitutive. Now, at both the SDS and Kuchatov next door, which houses employees and their families, we find at least a double slipperiness, a multiplicity of names, I'm going to tell you about all of this, for things and things that are themselves unstable, mobile, shape-shifting in several senses. We find that radioactive isotropes decay, change form and effect. They travel across vectors at varying speeds. Hydrogeological vectors are themselves mutable. Bricks and metal are scavenged from constructions, rumour says to be sold elsewhere. Winds whirl across this step. One of the things you really can't get with a photograph is standing there and the noise of the wind whirling across this thing is really quite dramatic. People are moving in and out of the little town, emigrants taking with them skills, experience and knowledge. But moving on demands at least an appearance of fixity in order to enable the sense that some thing has been contained and left behind, or selectively carried forward. But keeping things in place and creating these orderly narratives is difficult work. And it's these attempts to hold and moor the flightiness of the SDS and bring it into the service of the future that is the theme of this paper. And I hope what emerges are not simple dichotomies between lay and expert knowledges, between fixity on the one hand and movement on the other. These different ways and conditions of knowing, I think, rather bleed into one another. So the experiences and perspectives of one person, whether Elena, who I showed you, the young mother, or officials, shift from one context to another. There's also the choice not to articulate or to pause to think about certain knowledges simply because you can't get on with living an everyday life if you're constantly facing and thinking about certain things. And trying to think about different ways of representing this ethnographically, I've been reading much more uh, Kathleen Stewart and various others, and she's written, and many other people, on what she calls worlding and becoming semi-stream of consciousness accounts, as you, know, you all know, of polyvalent and partial experiences um, of the multiplicity of forms and times inherent in objects. But while acknowledging these plural experiences in the material world, I also want to think about the implications of fixing, making things still. In other words, what are the consequences of defining and fixing objects? So in the remaining sections, I'm going to first give you a slightly more detailed account of that opening paragraph, showing how hard it can be to pin down some apparently commonly agreed points um, even where certain things theoretically can be objectively described, measurements often seem, or numbers, to fall short in conveying the full effect of an event or an object. And there was often endless recourse to analogy or evocation. And then I wanted to touch on the tradition, largely a product of Cold War secrecy, of deliberately naming things and activities to deflect attention away from what they are. So things of multiple concurrent names, some official, some are a series of nicknames to domesticate things and to indicate <laughs> a kind of a community of naming, if you like, a community of, of, of referring to something in a particular way. And then I want to talk about the essential instability of the town the people and the site before talking about two different approaches to making knowledge claims about the STS. One rests on assumptions of containment, the other of openness, and the entailments of each are very different. And very briefly, I did two periods of fieldwork, one in 2007 um, when I was the official guest of the National Nuclear Centre 
and they were very generously describing and telling me a lot about their work and showing me around and the site and their labs and so on. Um, and then later I was living there, which was slightly more challenging, um, in 2009 for a while, as well as in local towns and talking to retired scientists from the site. Um, extensive talks, which are very useful, were with a retired mayor of this town who had retired, and we actually carried out these very long interviews for a series of days, and his ostrich farm he'd set up in the middle of the steppe, so it was all slightly bizarre, because he'd said ostrich meat is apparently very good for radioactivity, encountering it. Now, <coughs> next section, uncertain facts. My informants and neighbours in Kachatov were very keen to tell me when I arrived that over 350 books, Balmukhanov and Bozhtaev being the best known in Kazakhstan, had been written on the Soviet nuclear programme already, i.e., why was I bothering? It had all been done. Few or none of these, however, described the people who had lived and worked in Kachatov, other than the very fleetingly visiting stars of Soviet nuclear physics, Kuchatov himself, Keraton, Beria, Sakharov, and so on. There was hardly any mention of the town, and supposed facts were often greeted <coughs> with derision by residents. And in fact, reading, I think it was Sagdeev or Sakharov's memoirs, the only mention of Kazakhstan was this distant fireball. That was it. Nothing else was ever mentioned. Drawing out an uncontested background to the establishment and functioning of the STS in town was less straightforward than I'd anticipated. There were hesitancies both in the literature and from my informants over numbers, and as I said, both figures and places often seem to be evoked through analogies, as though simple quantification was not quite enough. And that essential uncertainty seeped into the present, and characterised much of my fieldwork as residents and scientists, also residents, of course, sometimes denied other accounts, chose not to know, evokes a kind of liquid uncanniness or privileged other ways of knowing. Elena, the young mother who I showed you at the back there, in one of our conversations suddenly said how angry she was with classmates of hers who had left and then returned and spoke with horror how this place had fallen into ruins and she said they have no rights to talk about Kachatov. They left. How dare they come back and talk about it? Whereas she, with a lot of other people, had stayed on there. Trying to enumerate, for example, global detonations as a context um, is similarly fraught with uncertainty. So there are different totals, once you start looking, of global nuclear tests between 45 and 98, Two common numbers, 2053, 2046. The US carried out around 1,054 tests. The Soviet Union, about 715 other nuclear powers, around 114. The numbers never quite add up, simply because there's no clear agreement as to what always constitutes a detonation, hence the familiar qualifiers. Now, while being wrapped in secrecy, atmospheric tests before 1963 were also spectacularly visible and easily detectable through fallouts. So, yes, in one sense you can count those, but some failed to work or exploded erratically. How do we count these? Are they fail tests? Are they tests? How does one count or measure their effect? Now, apart from the tests carried out in the Soviet Arctic, most of the Soviet Union's tests were carried out in this place, northeast Kazakhstan. Identified by Beria in 47, this test ground is 18,500 square kilometres. Sometimes it's described as being half the size of Belgium. Sometimes it's described as the entirety of Belgium. Once it's also described as the size of Wales. <laughs> which is actually 20.7 kilometres squared. But anyway, there we go. Multiple reasons are given both by locals and by local and academic literature for choosing this location. Some say Beria claimed the lands were empty, thus echoing a very familiar colonial discourse of denying recognition of indigenous peoples, the terra nullius move. 
Um, Tchaikovsky, the mayor I was talking about, for example, used a very common trope, a lot of people talk to use there, in describing the establishment of the STS, also known as the Polygon, on the naked steppe, the Goliath steppe. There was nothing there, he said. Others speak of deliberate genocide of Kazakhs. Beria knew there were people there and deliberately set out to test the effects of, of um, the test on them. A spokesman for the NNC said that can't be true. The effects of the test were simply unknown at the start. Whether or not that is true, it is a common fact, this is widely known, that the military set up a clinic in 1957 in Semipalatinsk purportedly to study TB. It was called the Antibrucellosis uh, anti Dispensary Number 4, and it was to study the effects of radioactivity on the local population. The records are there. Property rights aside, as in whether it was inhabited or not, um, the land was also chosen for proximity to the uh, a railway, an airport in Semipalatinsk, the Irtysh River for transport, and other parts of the Soviet nuclear complex in the Urals. In conditions of incredible hardship, this, this is a very key part of the narrative in setting this place up. Again, it's a right to speak through suffering in some ways. A small garrison was set up in this place, 30 kilometres, uh, this is Kachatov, 30 kilometres from the site, and that became Kachatov. By the 1950s, this had developed from a, free, from, sorry, can't speak, from a few frozen dugouts and tents on the steppe to a sizable town for officers, civilians and their families, abutted by a similar complex for soldiers, each of them very well equipped with libraries, schools, medical facilities, palaces of culture. The precise size of the town isn't known. There is much speculation. I was frequently told only the most senior general ever knew. The mayor told me, but who knows if he knows or not. Um, the likeliest number that Tchaikovsky told me um, based on a referendum held just before the army left was 23,000 adults plus children in 1993. But numbers cited in various accounts range from 50,000 to the more usual 20,000. Approximately five kilometres away along the river, uh, there's a small area of roughly built datchers described by their owners as glorified hen houses and they grew up with allotments for cultivation and leisure. And in common with most nuclear towns in the Soviet Union, but also further abroad, um, I'm doing some work, well, haven't picked up for a long time to go back with people in Sellafield, and the um, knowledge and community manager there is very keen on seeing parallels. I mean, a very different size of place, but in terms of elite peripheral places there as well. So in common with most nuclear towns, it was characterised by secrecy, extreme isolation, and the relative luxury in which the constrained residents lived. And the isolation was twofold. The location was usually peripheral, far from other settlements, and towns are ringed by barbed wire and guarded by checkpoints, as you saw. Not all Soviet nuclear-closed uh, cities were concerned with nuclear production. Other strategic towns and border towns, such as Kaliningrad, were also closed. And isolated or pioneer settlements in the further mineral-rich reaches of the Soviet East were often also very well provided for and are undergoing similar reintegration problems. The exceptionality of nuclear towns therefore needs to be modified until perhaps they're seen in conjunction with their raison d'etre. In Russian, one word summarises the extent to which a one-company town is shaped by its primary purpose, and it's one word that means the structure that defines the town. Um, so here, if previously it was the military testing programme, today people talk about the National Nuclear Centre as the structure that defines this town. So the IAEA, as I said, says 456 tests were carried out here, 116 atmospheric until the 1963 Limited Test Ban Treaty ended surface explosions. After that, four were what they call excavation tests, and 336 were underground, either in boreholes or tunnels. The significance of having underground things is that very often aquifers were shattered 
but people don't know exactly what happened. That's the key thing there, because protocols, as I said, were taken back to Russia. The total yield has been said to be the equivalent of about 1,000 Hiroshima's analogy. How do you get over a sense of what was actually going on? As I said, it's difficult also to be precise, as some tests didn't go as planned, but the test documentation is largely in Russian military hands now, or it was destroyed. My older informants told me of the time, just as they were leaving in that very harsh winter, the Russian army, of coming upon senior Russian officers hastily stuffing papers into stoves just before the army left. There were also accidents. There's a media report from 1992, a local paper, where the main site doctor suggested that one in three of the underground tests didn't go as planned. There were failed detonations. There were unforeseen changes of wind direction. A coal seam that caught fire from an underground test and burned for five years. And again, the IEA notes that details of failed tests are needed to determine fully any residual effects. And only recently, some of you may have seen this in the news, have some Russian military test protocols uh, finally became accessible for Russian, Kazakh and American nuclear scientists to locate and secure uh, remnants of weapon-grade plutonium on the site. Fallout from surface tests contaminated the ground and was carried further afield by wind. Underground testing, as I said, reduced the risk of airborne fallout, but modified the hydrogeology of the area. And radioactive gases also emerged up to the surface from these underground tests. Um, as I said at the very beginning, the test site also had experimental nuclear reactors used for parallel civil research programs, um, test looking for liquid fuel nuclear rocket engines. So, in fact, the Nobody talks about this. Nobody knows about this. They talk about the Baikonur Cosmodrome, which was somewhere else. But on this site, you actually had the two Cold War icons, if you like, the Space War and the Nuclear War, um, in the same place. The site was also used to test dirty bombs. And you might say, if it was so shot to pieces, why not? At the time, toxic, extremely toxic industrial wastes from nearby industrial cities were also later buried there. So when Peter, you said, is this about waste, there's quite a lot of waste there, yes. Um, after a highly public campaign headed by the Kazakh poet Olja Sulimenov, the SDS was closed in 1991, just before Kazakhstan became independent in December. And the campaign emphasised the ravaging of Kazakh lands by the Russian Soviets. Many long-term residents of Kuchatov are Russian. And some, in particular <laughs> the picture of the woman I showed you in that rather sort of green little art gallery she's got going as a studio for children there, speaks very angrily and indignantly that only Kazakh suffering from nuclear detonations has ever been recognised. She says, the remaining 120 nationalities around here have effectively been eclipsed in this rather binary nationalism. For two years, the army stayed on, the, now the Russian army in Kazakhstan, before suddenly leaving. As I said, it was an intensely bitter winter. The heating plant failed. Many of the empty apartment blocks were ransacked for wood to burn. Residents now vaguely blaming hooligans from the villages coming in. And it's still, as I showed you, half ruined. A fact picked up on by the steady stream of local and national journalists. But my neighbours in 2009 said, you know, when people first come here, all they see is ruins, but we don't see them anymore. This is our home. The longer I was there, those moments flicker between other moments. So that's why I didn't want to say it's just one or the other. These things intersect in different things. Some examples. Vitilavna, a 60-year-old, told me of her father's illness in the mid-90s. She'd been here since the 1950s. And she said, how could I, I... It was my duty as a daughter to care for my father, but how could I bring my dying father here to care for him in this pile of ruins? And then she suddenly switched to, this is where I live, this is where my future is. Elena, who I told you about, was angered by accounts which always foregrounded the ruination, suddenly burst out, you know, I grew up here. 
It's my home. But sometimes when I think of my children, I'm so afraid for them. There is no future here for them. And that's what people, a lot of people, were talking about, the future of the children. And then quite different accounts would come in about the past. Some older residents, a friend of mine, Nina, would talk through the, through the empty field. It was quite odd, walking through this emptiness, and suddenly through the empty fields, crumbling balustrades and collapsed structures. She'd talk about these incredibly happy pasts, replete with dashing young officers. And she said to my slight surprise once, it was so romantic. It was like Moscow, it was like St. Petersburg. We had these young officers, there were dances and marches and celebrations. And then she said, it was slightly alarmed me, I must say, every young mother was pregnant and pushing a baby in a pushchair with a toddler on one hand. Um, so this amazing fertility of the place. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's doing field work in Sellafield. And I said this was, she was talking about the 1950s and 60s. My friend who was doing stuff in Sellafield said there was exactly the same narratives going on from that time, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, younger teenagers, I have to say, were extremely bored and grumpy most of the time. Not much to do. But this kind of nostalgia that you got firsthand through these people talking about the past, recycled, so effectively second-hand nostalgia for a second generation, often appeared <coughs> as spookiness and uncanniness, so half-heard stories, and we've heard about this and we've heard about that, but it wasn't a direct memory. So, as I said, there was a civilian programme and the nuclear test, a rather odd inversion, if you think about it, that the civilian programme was effectively hidden under the guys um, in front, so it was hidden by the weapon testing. You might imagine it to be the other way around. But what's happening now is an attempt to turn that around and to foreground the civilian research and energy programme and to background the legacy and what happened with the weapons. But this also is presenting a critical challenge to address a past that in a way cannot be left nor openly lived with. It's this past that is continually insisting itself into the present. Now, investment in Kuchatov so far, beyond the National Nuclear Centre, has mainly been in the form of what's called the Nuclear Technopark uh, on Kuchatov's outskirts. This generated quite a lot of scorn by residents. Favourite common joke at the time when I was there was, is it a ruin or is it half-built? Who can tell? Um, referencing the length of time it was taken to build, so it just looked like a heap of bricks for a long time, um, and then it remained empty, but also perhaps suggesting that the future had actually just gone to join the rest of the crumbling town. You actually can't move out of this everlasting present. Now, since 2009, repairing ruined apartment blocks has stepped up. One of the more noticeable changes is the addition of the standard repertoire of Kazakh state and nationalist symbols. Uh, I showed you Kaz uh, the entrance to Kuchatov. That's now got a big banner above it, but also in turquoise, which is the flag's national colour and the, the state's national colour. There are also statues of... I can explain these later, the golden man, Dombra playing woman, and nomadic woman, um, and sundry life-size animals. The last, presumably, but residents are writing to me still saying, I've got no idea, we just keep seeing there's a large donkey that appears and it goes somewhere, we've got absolutely no idea why they're there. Um, we imagine um, to evoke a kind of Kazakh pastoralist tradition. So in other words, while residents still wait in hope for an improved infrastructure, attention is being paid to secure, securing the town symbolically as a Kazakh enterprise. But for residents, the future of a livable town still seems to be in abeyance. Arguably, reframing the discipline of secrecy so severely inculcated during the Cold War is critical for allowing the shift from one mode to another, from Soviet weapons testing to Kazakh peaceful nuclear research. And I don't know if you know Hugh Gustafson's work, um, that he's talked quite a lot about how that operates in Livermore, the ritualised secrecy there. But the path here of the National Nuclear Centre hasn't always been quite what you might imagine, simply because after the Russian army left, the resources and organisation that you need for comprehensive secrecy and security just haven't been there. But what has remained very often is secrecy as a habitus. So these things, as I'll explain, work in a slight tension 
So this habitus also affects scientific practice and claims, as well as how the place is or can be known by residents. Now, non-National Nuclear Centre scientists I interviewed from Kazakhstan spoke, they said it was fantastic, you know, in the early 1990s, we could do anything we liked. You know, the fence had been ripped down and taken off for scrap, nobody quite knows. Um, We could very easily just go onto the site for what we wanted to do, for research into mutagenesis, into health, into radionuclide migration. But we couldn't enter the town, that was a different matter. Even after the Soviet-Russian army had gone, the Kazakh administration kept the guarded entry point until 1997 to keep out, I quote, the bandits and hooligans from the villages, the Kazakhs and the villages. A geobotanist uh, from another Kazakh institute in Almaty, and she'd worked there since 1994, told me with peals of laughter that although she initially was not allowed a map of the site, an American scientist later showed her his from the 1970s and 80s, and his map had every single installation very accurately marked. Later on, she said, she bought a map in the local shop in Semipalatinsk, and there's a little shop in Kuchatov. And when she went back, she showed her university spets, which is the sort of leftover of the KGB cell that was in each university. It was horrified she got this map which she bought in a shop, confiscated it, would only ever let her look at it in a locked room with him sitting there. So there were sort of layers of people not quite knowing what to do with this sort of thing. Now, the current director of the Institute of Radiation and Ecology Safety, IRES, has tried to re-secure the site as far as possible, but you saw how big it is and what's actually there. Two, has to be said, the frustration of scientists elsewhere in Kazakhstan, who often say that the NNC's bureaucracy is so tortuous it's almost impossible to carry out scientific work. And I was saying to Javier before, um, my fieldwork was slightly difficult the second bout, and the director of IRIS said to me, rolling his eyes, said we also have a lot of difficulty with the police and the KNB and various other things. So these things are weaving in and out. It's not just, I want to pursue this research and I'll do it. There are a number of different things going on. Um, So the scientists in the NNC also observed the civil administration and security services could make their work quite difficult, largely because, it was said very often, they still have Soviet heads and don't realise times have changed. I will skip this bit. Sorry, I'm trying to move on. So indeed, many inhabitants were so drilled in this culture of secrecy that mystery continued despite attempts by this by the director, uh, Kadizhanov, and the deputy director of the NNC to open up debates. This was a new policy. And combat what they call radiophobia, excessive and irrational fears of radioactivity. So I'd just been wandering around the little museum where the map with the boundaries came from and a 14-year-old boy told me later on, I hadn't told him I'd just been there, and he very dolefully told me, there's this nice Churchillian echo to this, he said, nobody is ever allowed to see that museum and you'll never be allowed in there because this place is an enigma wrapped in secrecy in great darkness. Now, as I go on to discuss... A particular kind of recognition of Kazakhstan's legacy serves to both acknowledge and erase this, and I suggest this follows a longer tradition of secrecy where nuclear installations and objects were deliberately named to deflect attention from what they were and where they were. I think I'm going to try and cut some of this, so apologise if I um, pause occasionally to see this. Um, The difference between the uncertainty I've been trying to just describe and deflective naming is that the use of these names was a shared convention within a community. So Kachatov and the site were constructed as places deliberately that defied conventional methods for knowing. As with other secret atomic installations, they were not on any map, and they not only had no public name, they had many working names and nicknames, alongside several deflective official names. The town started off just being called Moscow 400, 
many, apparently many soldiers' mothers thought their sons had been sent to Moscow and would travel there to try and find them. Some who'd arrived via the river Irtish called the garrison after the landing stage where they had arrived, Nadezhno, which means hope. Others call, still call it Bereg, which means shore, where they had landed. And after the railway was built, it was also called Terminus, Konechnaya. And then you had official co- code names. Each of the things were called site. This town was site M, site Sh, site D, and so on. Um, and it was finally called Kuchatov and made into a civilian town in 1974. The name most people know it by, Semipalatinsk 21, um, was simply its postcode. Explicitly designed to put people off. Semipalatinsk is 150 kilometres away. All the nuclear towns were called postcode towns, and they were referred, uh, called after towns that were a long way away, deliberately, so people didn't know where they were. But later, after the film Titanic came out in Russian, another name was added, because passing motorists seeing the tall chimneys of the half-ruined town poked through the winter snow blanket called the town Titanic. Departments were also coded. I'll just give two examples. Uh, the, Uni- the Institute of Atomic Energy was called the United Expedition, and then another diminutive, diminutive after diminutive, is just known as the Union. Um, the seismic station was just called Object 905. Um, the nuclear program department was called the Ministry of Middle Machine Construction. A lot of these things were deliberately designed to be so banal and so boring, it would just put people off. And Sagdeo's got a really nice thing in his memoirs about being invited to join a highly prestigious laboratory run by Kuchatov. Said the laboratory of measuring instruments? I don't want to go there until some... No, this is what actually goes on there. So this is them. Um, so, a number of deflective mechanisms going on. So that's naming an object, but the other is identifying the object that is to be named. And this is the next section. Town, people and site all turn out to be unstable, expanding, sometimes diminishing entities, resistant to being kept in place. By the late 1990s, it happened, I was told, 1997, the uninhabited soldiers' town, so next door to Kachatov, was taken to pieces brick by brick. By 2007, there was only a completely bare field where there'd been once six to 10,000 soldiers with a full infrastructure. No one apparently knew who had done this, as I said, saying, oh, it was hooligans, white vans came in and disappeared and we'd see people doing this. Later, one or two people very shyly said, well, actually, I went with my grandmother and we did take wood. We were so cold, we needed something to burn. And somebody was saying, well, we went to the library and to take books. And it seemed such a shame. Marx had worked so hard writing all those books and there were just piles of them. So I took them all back with me and I haven't read any of them, but they're still sitting there. And I just wanted to rescue them. Um, so there were a lot of things going on. Some residents wondered, with a very broad grin, if the bricks had in fact gone to construct the new capital, Astana, then rapidly shooting up in the middle of the steppe. And this observation provoked very wry comments from other people, comparing the ruins of Kachatov, that had once housed the intellectual elite in luxury, and the new for old capital, that was said to be being built so fast and with so little care that it would also soon fall down. Others quietly wondered if, in fact, the bricks were radioactive. So the town itself was vanishing, even as it was apparently proliferating, encompassing other places. And that tradition, as I said, of secrecy also lent itself to a sense of hovering unspoken pasts. As a teenage girl said very simply to me, it's really spooky here. Itinerant people and knowledge are also cause for attention. Nazarbayev's call for scientists to say in place that I open with is mirrored internationally. Kazakhstan needs highly trained nuclear engineers and physicists. International bodies (laughs) are far more alarmed about nuclear knowledge seeping to what are now called states of concern, particularly in the 1990s when there was just no money to pay salaries. So there's the Russian-British government's closed nuclear cities partnership working across the former Soviet Union that emphasises finding sustainable employment within these towns. 
But the constant refrain during my fieldwork was the poverty of social and infrastructural provision, good schools, kindergartens, medical care. And the lack of that, referring to comments earlier, is prompting many to leave, which is still continuing. The site itself magnifies these questions of instability. Until the military left, the site's perimeter was guarded and fenced. But after the army left, the fence was rapidly dismantled. Anecdote has it, the metal was sold illegally to China. There are now, as you saw, almost no visible markers of where the step ends and the site begins. After the fence disappeared, there were regular raids, illegal, informal, at night, uh, for bricks and particularly for metal. Blocked-up entrances to tunnels and boreholes were ripped open by metal scavengers. I spoke to somebody who'd done this to extract valuable copper wire to sell. And it was precisely anxieties that they were becoming alarmingly close to residual plutonium that prompted the collaboration I mentioned earlier. Now, the Institute of Radioactive, uh, Radioactive Safety and Ecology, uh, sorry, I'm trying to speed on, uh, was formed from a previous laboratory and is specifically for monitoring the migration of radionuclides on the site uh, from water to soil to plants and to animals. It is funded by the government to monitor the site. Remember that map with the red boundaries? It becomes relevant now. It's funded by the government to monitor that site Although, as the scientists there said to me quietly, aquifers and waterways do not observe site boundaries, things move opposite. Tritium has been observed in the Shagan River that crosses that boundary. In 2009, following that new policy of openness, the Institute noted in a publication for the general public, how many? Six things. That underground cavities close to coal seams have and might again cause explosions. They noted that groundwater contains traces of cesium, strontium, and high levels of tritium, which moves at the rate of water flow. They noted there are spots, which are, not, which are they have a red and white post by them, of radionuclide specific hotspots of contamination within and beyond the site that there are unauthorised grazing and mining activities currently on site. Just to put this into uh, context, unauthorised grazing, there are said to be 30 to 40,000 head of cattle and sheep on the site. Tritium has been detected in animal products on farms nearby. They also said that studies carried out by them and by NATO suggest that local villages have no more than global norms of background radiation. In conclusion, they say, I quote, taking into account the scale of the site and variety of tests for, performed there, the information can't be exhaustive, but enables us to propose a plan for further research and practical measures aimed at reclamation of lands. Implementation of such measures will return up to 80% of the land to commercial use. The director has cited higher figures. He said, I quote, it is expected that up to 95% of the site can be returned to normal economic use. Effectively, the NNC is attempting to establish certainty against a background of mutability and volatility. You might call it a cartographic fix. I think it was about five more minutes, isn't it? Okay. In addition, just as a side point, the Institute suggested the site could perhaps be registered as a World Heritage and Tourism Site with UNESCO, which would again reduce radiophobia in Kazakhstan and increase national pride on scientific advances that happened there. In 2011, the IAEA cautiously backed these plans for commercialisation. This is not, as you might imagine, uncontentious. Discussions with and publications by other local scientists who'd worked there um, via internally and externally funded projects proposed a very different view of the site. In some, their opinion is that it is essentially limitless and unknowable. Oh, and I've just summarised. These are from interviews, three main counts. First, 
radiobiologists said it's an open ecological system. There are many vectors for transporting radioactive contamination, uh, which also migrates between vectors. It's open to winds, it's open to birds that can carry contaminated materials. The Shagan <laughs> River passes through the area where there were detonations and beyond the site. It goes beyond the formal monitoring boundaries and eventually reaches the Irtish River, which in turn flows north to meet the Ob. While tritium is not in itself particularly toxic, you flush it out through drinking lots of beer is the local thing, um, it, it's a diuretic, as well. Um, it can be seen as an indicator for other slower-moving but more toxic radioactive elements. Second, the very nature of radioactive decay and migration makes it impossible to predict with certainty what the future will hold. And third, activities such as mining and intensive grazing may spread contamination even further. And the unknowability of what will happen is accentuated by the fact that the documentation about the conditions of the test before isn't available locally. They say, well, they said to me, the site should be secured again, continuously monitored and celebrated as an amazing place for scientists to study the effects of radioactivity on life forms. In addition, a series of publications suggests that background levels of radiations do exceed norms, as do radiation-related pathologies. Not time now, but there are a series of, if you like, the politics of how local statistics are reported and recorded and the shifting of administrative boundaries. So, discussion. In some ways, the strategy of deflection continues. Placing Kachatov and the site in the category of heritage rather than the present acts to mummify events into a containable past, easier to manage. Again, in a rather clever management of the past, the site is swept up in the Institute's new slogan from national tragedy to national patrimony, national pride. By shifting the terms of the legacy, selecting the advances made and leaving behind problematic elements, the slogan endeavours to enable a move from passive victims to the active embrace of a particular scientific inheritance and a stake in history moving forward. The media locally emphasised this shift. Kazakhstan, still half-ruined in 2009 and now has been named various things from local reports, a phoenix, the most intellectual town in Kazakhstan, a town of science, uh, the site itself... Um, you have the environmental and medical history and consequences in the present and future, and they're displaced by a concern <coughs> with a research future for, and here's a quote from a Kuchatovitz, somebody from Kuchatov in 2014. He said, we're the only one-company town whose product is scientific knowledge. The fact that the testing site was a tiny part of a vast complex is eclipsed. It's almost as though the logic of fractals insists on seeing the whole in this one part. Now, whereas one approach towards the site I've been talking about um, is arguably a similar task of containment, this, the other one, as I said, is based on openness. And this is obviously an oversimplification, and there are many shades, but these monochrome alternatives perhaps serve to highlight underlying logics. What interests me here is, I think I've probably given away my sympathies, but anyway, I'm trying to say, not interested in who's right or wrong, but the consequences and premises of different positions. They're so different, agreement is unlikely. As I said, one shuts down or manages the site, the other keeps it alive as an open question. So my argument is this. In order to know and name an object of inquiry, it needs to be limited, it needs to be finite. Following government guidelines, the Institute adopts a geometrical representation of the site to artificially bound its sampling, and a wide range of methods has been used, and the results are then extrapolated, spatially and temporally. The known parameters of the samples are extended to cover the whole site, but no further than its borders, and also then to stretch into the future. In effect, 
the predictive power of modelling a limited number of variables in a closed system has been applied to the site. This representation of the site as bounded and finite allows it to be known and modelled as a laboratory experiment. Once knowable, it can be declared clean and, as we've seen, erased as a legacy and transformed into a commercially viable future. You might say this could be seen as field science as though it were lab science with restricted variables. The proponents of the alternative approach adopt what they call the ecological stance. The site is essentially open and, in many respects, expanding. This works in several ways. They say the site cannot be bounded spatially. <coughs> Contamination travels. They suggest extrapolation from spot samples from so huge a site is suspect. Samples need to be taken at least every 20 metres, and they say it's not possible. Future effects cannot be predicted, only monitored and used to build up a unique accretion of knowledge. The consequences of these two stances are stark and paradoxical. The reductive approach allows a knowledge object to be produced and predictions made. But the act of claiming the site is knowable also serves to manage it out of existence, to erase uncomfortable histories and make it anew. The expansive approach, in contrast, by asserting the site's uniqueness and unknowability in toto, keeps it in view, maintains the site as an ever-expanding question an enduring present, rather than one that flows into a developing future. <clears throat>